Guys can be such dicks. No, seriously, in ancient Assyrian art and literature, the erect male soldier was a stand-in for the erect penis. According to historian Julia Asante, the one is frequently used as a metaphor for the other. Gives a whole new meaning to junk mail, doesn't it? And this Assyrian hypermasculinity may have led to the puzzling rise of the unmanned man, the eunuch. Now, eunuchs, or castrated men, were the opposite of the hypermasculine male. They were the emasculated male. And yet, they surrounded royalty in the Byzantine Empire, the Chinese Empire, many Muslim caliphates, and in the original case, the Assyrian Empire. Eunuchs first appeared in the entourages of ancient Assyrian kings some 3,000 years ago. But why? And what do they have to do with men who are so manly their manhood is literally equated with their manhood? That's what we're talking about today on the History of Sex Short Shorts. <laughs> History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I want to thank our Patreon patron, Frederick Dumont, for making this episode possible. Before we get started with this manly episode, I want to introduce you to a manly show with the manly title, War and Conquest. Picture yourself sitting in traffic. With nothing to stare at but the lights in front of you, you scroll through your phone, looking for something to entertain you, and all of a sudden you see it. A beam from heaven shines down on your phone, the glare gets in your eyes, but through the glare, you see it. The War and Conquest podcast, hosted by Neil Eckert. You click on it, and all of a sudden the speakers of your car are filled with the glorious exploits of conquerors past. Alexander the Great, the Crusades, Julius Caesar, and you are swept away. You get drawn into the grand sweeping narrative of history. You are transported. And before you know it, you are so swept up in all of the excitement, you don't realize you're going 65 miles an hour in a school zone. And you are pulled over. Your license is revoked. Your car is impounded. And you must spend a few nights in jail, cuddling next to a burly man with questionable sexuality. But through it all, you tell yourself, the quest for knowledge has all been worth it, for you have been entertained. Or, you know, at least mildly amused. And slightly more informed than you were a half an hour ago. You know, either one, really. Born Conquest Podcast, hosted by Neil Eckert, posts every Monday. If you like death and destruction and gore, all those manly things, you will love War and Conquest. Alright, let's get to our episode. Time for today's Short Shorts. Now, what's a eunuch again? Oh yeah, that's a guy whose head is balls chopped off, or crushed, or surgically excised, or otherwise rendered ineffective. And the Assyrian term for a eunuch was Shah Reshi, meaning 
unbearded, which contrasted with the intact or bearded man, Shah Zegni. See, if a male is made into a eunuch before puberty, he will typically never develop facial hair, thus engendering one of the key stereotypical traits, beardlessness. You know, like Varys in Game of Thrones, no beard, no hair at all, in fact. That's a eunuch stereotype, not completely true of all eunuchs, but true to historical perceptions of them, at least. And in Assyrian art, intact men almost always sport long, luxurious, and meticulously oiled, curled, and groomed beards. They would have made great hipsters. But in contrast, eunuchs are always shown smooth-faced. Even though in actual fact, many eunuchs could actually grow facial hair, especially if they had been cut after puberty. But nevertheless, the primary visual identifying characteristic of the eunuch was a smooth face. Now, eunuchs made before puberty, in addition to rarely developing facial hair, also typically have a higher voice, they may be a bit pudgy, and may have infantile genitalia. And there's a whole lot more to it. It's actually a fascinating story. We did a whole series on court eunuchs on my other show, Dead Ideas, so check that out if you really want to dive into this. But anyway, as far as we know, eunuchs came about for the first time in the ancient Assyrian Empire, which got rolling around 2000 BCE. Now, there may possibly have been earlier examples of eunuchs, but the Assyrian case is the first that we know with historical certainty. Okay, so why did they arise in Assyria? That's what we're here to find out. First, we'll look at the Assyrians themselves and get a sense of their peculiar notion of hyper-masculinity, and then we'll find out how that may have led to the rise of eunuchs. All right. So let's begin with the Assyrians. Last time, in our episode entitled Sex in the City of Babylon, we looked at the Babylonians, an ancient Mesopotamian culture. And another such culture was their neighbors to the north, the Assyrians. Their capital city, Asher, was just a hop, skip, and a jump up the Tigris River. And throughout ancient history, the Babylonians and the Assyrians took turns dominating the Fertile Crescent. Isn't it nice when kids play together? Well, it was a beautiful day in the neighborhood when the Assyrians came screaming in and decided it was their turn, gently raining down a hellstorm of arrows, their favored weapon, whose penetrative power is a metaphor not lost to historians. I'll give you one guess what it represented. That's right. And the Assyrians didn't mind being compared to dicks. In fact, the Assyrians went down in history as major pricks, and that was intentional on their part. See, as a propaganda campaign, Assyrian kings erected monuments to the cruelties that they inflicted upon conquered peoples. It was an intimidation tactic to keep people in line. Here's a typical example of the kind of thing that they would write about themselves on a monument. I built a pillar at the city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. 
Yep, and that little ditty comes from the inscription in a temple at Nimrod, erected upon capture of the city of Suru in 878 BCE. And the message basically was, mess with us, and we'll make you regret you ever heard of us. The Assyrians made it known far and wide just how big of dicks they could be. And they could be real dicks when it came to sex, too. See, they had the same attitudes toward penetration as the Babylonians. Now, to review, the long and short of it is this. Sexually penetrating another person, female or male, was just fine. It expressed your masculine prowess. But being sexually penetrated, well, that was another story altogether. That was just about the worst thing that could possibly befall you. It marked you as feminine and passive and you became the object of ridicule and scorn. And this was a key point of that hyper-masculinity of the Assyrians. For them, a man was to be absolutely inviolate, never to be violated in any way, shape, or form. And you can see this depicted in Assyrian art. As historian Julia Asante notes, no arrow ever pierces the Assyrian body. No knife, no sword, no lance. Asante says again, Akkadian sources frequently conflate the male body and the penis. The erect penis is, in turn, likened to effective weapons. Thus, to be penetrated by a weapon is also metaphorically equivalent to sexual violation in their view and thus unmanly. So even weapons are metaphors for dicks for Assyrians. Thus, to be penetrated by a weapon is metaphorically equivalent to sexual violation in their view, and thus unmanly. And just imagine what this must have been, the anxieties that must have been felt by Assyrian soldiers themselves. I mean, one can only imagine the double humiliation faced by an Assyrian veteran soldier who is actually wounded on the battlefield because... You can't always just avoid that. This poor veteran is not only defeated, but emasculated as well. In short, the inviolate body was what defined an Assyrian male, and if you were violated, that is what knocked you off of that privileged perch called manhood. And Asante puts a fine point on it here. Physical violation the rubric under which the ancients would have located penetration reduced the male citizen to the level of the slave, child, woman, criminal, or foreigner. So in other words, an unpenetrated body was what marked a man off from all of these other non-men, to which one could very well add eunuchs. Now in fact, this hypermasculinity may actually be what led to the rise of eunuchism. The eunuch may have arisen in part as a means of reinforcing this dominant male masculinity. See, eunuchs were the opposite of the inviolate male. A eunuch was the permanently violated male, violated by the knife to his manhood. It doesn't get any worse than that. But it didn't start off that way. As Julia Sante notes, originally, Assyrian masculinity was defined by the Awilu, or Assyrian male citizen, ethnically 
a Syrian male citizen. See, what made you a real man with all its attendant status and social privileges was being an ethnically Assyrian adult. It made you like a citizen with rights and stuff. That gave you privileges in society lacked by foreigners, lacked by women, lacked by children, lacked by criminals. And so it was an effective marker of your manhood and your privilege within patriarchy. It effectively said you were one of the top dogs in society. You know, kind of not unlike being white in the antebellum south of the United States. Antebellum, you know, like before the Civil War. Being ethnically Assyrian was kind of like being racially white or at least in the beginning. However, as the Assyrian Empire grew, the population became more and more international and diverse. And what's more, the military was set up so that anyone could rise in rank, whether Assyrian or not. Now, presumably, this was a great benefit to the command structure of the Assyrian military, as it allowed those with the greatest talent to rise to the top and lead but it also made the military a locus of tension. See, suddenly there were all these upstart foreigners all over the place rising in rank, such that just being ethnically Assyrian wasn't good enough anymore as a marker of status. I mean, imagine if whites in the antebellum South had to brook blacks being equal to them in rank in the army. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> imagine the anxiety that they would have had. Now, actually, fun fact, the U.S. didn't get around to a fully integrated military until World War II, believe it or not. But let's just put that aside for a second. If you could picture the masculine anxiety in the antebellum south of the U.S., then you can fairly picture the anxiety present for Assyrian men 3,000 years ago. So in short... Assyrian males, like American whites, needed a new way to define themselves as men. And in the case of American whites, they doubled down on racism by instituting Jim Crow laws, and we're still dealing with the fallout of that today. But Assyrians actually found a different way to resolve the issue, though no less reprehensible. They pivoted away from pure racism to the inviolate male body. Whereas women, children, slaves, foreigners, criminals, and so on could all be physically violated legally in one way or another, whether sexually by your spouse or by weapon, by your master or by your father, the body of the adult male citizen was never to be physically violated, neither by prick nor by weapon. And as we've seen, the two are frequent metaphors for each other. Now, in contrast, the eunuch castrated was permanently violated. He was a literally emasculated being standing as the opposite of ideal manhood. And thus, the eunuch served to highlight the intact male's masculinity by contrast. The one standing next to the other, it's, it's like painting black next to white in a painting. It really makes it pop. Having eunuchs next to you made your own manhood pop, no pun intended. Thus, the class of adult citizen males was able to reassert itself as top dog over and against a growing class of unmanned men, that is, eunuchs. That's what Assyrian masculinity had to do with the rise of eunuchs and eunuchs with the development of Assyrian masculinity. It's an interwoven story.
Ultimately, though, the joke was on them, on intact males, bearded men, Nishazegni, because, you see, eunuchs actually became so useful that they rose to fill the highest roles in the Assyrian court, thus effectively shutting out bearded men from the positions of greatest influence. For example, they served in roles such as, now these aren't going to sound influential, but I'll explain why they certainly are in just a moment, they served in roles such as fanning the king, whisking flies away from the king, holding his towel, carrying his bow, his personal bodyguard, and many other such positions that have to do with his very close personal retinue. Now, why are those roles important? They sound like the suckiest roles, the least important roles, the piss boy roles. But actually, everybody in Assyria wanted those roles. Why? Because in a system where power is concentrated in one person, to be close to that person is to have power. If you have the king's ear, then you have influence. So everybody wanted those roles. But they couldn't have them because they were full of eunuchs. So actually, in the end, eunuchs had the last laugh. Now isn't that a twist of irony? Eunuchs arose to keep intact males on top, but ended up on top themselves. Now that's crazy. It's almost as crazy as if in the United States today, a certain president whose name rhymes with rump were to completely fill his cabinet with illegal immigrants, thus shutting out legal citizens from the White House. You know, as if having all these undocumented workers around him would emphasize his own documentedness or something. <laughs> I mean, how backwards would that be? But ancient Assyria was just that backwards. Except in their case, their slogan wasn't build a wall, but rather cut them all. And on that note, that's about it for eunuchs and manhood in ancient Assyria. In short, the ideal Assyrian male was a penetrator, never a penetratee, never to be physically violated, sexually or otherwise, with the power to do as he pleased to lesser men. And to show himself just such a man, he might, if he had the wealth enough to do it, surround himself with his opposite, the unmanned man, the eunuch. I hope you learned something today. I certainly did. If you like what we're doing here, folks, you can support the show by subscribing, rating, and reviewing, or supporting us on Patreon. $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a luxuriously bearded Assyrian male, or even a bearded Assyrian female. There were queens who wore fake beards as a sign of their right to rule. Fun fact. Or I'll draw you as a beardless eunuch with a smug look on his face, securing the knowledge that he has the last laugh after all. Or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com forward slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, that's it for today, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex.
Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.